In way of opening, I want to point out that Satan has but two strategies in the life of the believer. And I'm not one of these people that kind of takes the approach of, let's talk about Satan. He's a defeated enemy. I could care less about Satan. I'm more interested in Jesus. But I think you'll see where I'm going. Satan has two strategies in our lives, the life of the believer. He either wants you to fall back into carnal living, or he wants you to fall forward into legalism. And this is why Satan knows that both carnal living and legalism make a mockery of the cross. And while most Christians are able to resist the urge to return to a carnal lifestyle, or or at a minimum, they at least understand how living a carnal lifestyle is detrimental to our spiritual life, legalism is different. Legalism is this lethal form of error. For it disguises itself in moralism, and it plays to the natural Christian desire to please God. It's stealth. In many ways, legalism is really sneaky. Let me give you an example. Legalism says this. If you love God, you'll obey him. If you want to please God, you'll serve him. And on the surface, this perspective seems reasonable. Many of you are sitting there thinking, yes, but sadly, it's an error. That perspective, if you love God, you'll obey him. If you want to please God, you'll serve him, is actually nothing more than a power play of your flesh craving inclusion. You see, the gospel of grace, this gospel of grace and grace alone, grace period, as we've stated, It rejects this notion, this perspective, by saying this, and notice the difference. Instead of, if you love God, you'll obey him, grace says, because God loves you, you'll want to obey him. Whereas legalism says, if you want to please God, you'll serve him, grace says, because God is pleased with you, you'll want to serve him. Do you see the difference? It's a subtle but significant change. Legalism always places the onus of your relationship with God upon self. Whereas the gospel, that's much different. The gospel centers the focus of your relationship off of self and onto God, specifically what God has done for you. Legalism props up what you do for God, where grace props up what God has done on your behalf. I love God because I do fill in the blank is the cry of legalism, but grace says because God loves me, I do this and I do that. I don't have to, but I get to, I want to. Unlike legalism, the gospel presents what we do in the name of God as being nothing more than a reciprocation to all that God has done for us. And with that in mind, the flesh has no room for pride. There's no room for pride in self. Why? Every single good thing that comes out of my life is not me, but it's Christ working through me. When you recognize that no good thing that comes from my life is about me and is instead all about Jesus, it's hard to take pride in self because self had no play in it. As a matter of fact, if you want to be accurate, every bad thing that comes out of you is you, not Christ. Keep this in mind. Though it tries to look the part, legalistic moralism 
is not godliness. Legalism is rather the fostering of a terrible lie that our obedience to God is based upon what we do for him versus the truth that it's a natural manifestation stemming from all that he's done for us. Anytime, Christian, you attempt to be more right with God, you are in actuality couldn't be more wrong. You can't get any more right than you are. By Jesus' work on the cross, you have been declared righteous in the halls, the courtroom of heaven. That's glorious. Anytime I find myself seeking God's good pleasure, it means something's wrong. It means that I've lost sight of the reality that I've already been given his good pleasure. If you're seeking something you've been given, you should take a step back and realize the folly in that. You see, it is a dangerous warp in thinking, this legalism, designed by a very real enemy in order to lead us away from the source of our spiritual vitality, Jesus. And it's with this in mind that I want to take a moment, before we get to our text, and address an issue related to Christian liberty, and specifically the way in which we deal with legalism that we haven't addressed thus far in our travels through Galatians. We've kind of nibbled around the edges, but we haven't gone right for it. Sadly, and it happens more often than not, when a person comes face to face with a spirit of legalism and then has to fight to defend the gospel of grace, period, this freedom that grace affords, there ends up, in many instances, not always, but in many, there ends up being this tragic counter-reaction that develops in the heart of the individual forced to defend grace. All too often, when engaging the legalist, it's easy for a person to, in turn, grow legalistic in the way they believe all Christian freedom should be enjoyed. It's kind of like the anti-legalist legalism. And it's easy. Think about it. It's easy to think often that because we enjoy a freedom that others have chosen to abstain from enjoying, that we have somehow become more in tune or maybe more consistent with the gospel message. And while that's a truth, sadly, and the irony is that this perspective is wrong. For it also stands guilty of doing what? Of possessing a false sense of moral superiority and consistent with grace, period. You see, grace and grace alone, it does something important in our lives. It takes our eyes off of what we do. It takes our eyes off of what we refrain from doing, or for that matter, what someone else is doing or refraining from doing. And what does it do? It places our eyes squarely on Jesus. It takes my eyes off of me. It takes my eyes off of others. It places them on Jesus and Jesus alone, what he's done for me. And then as a result, grace allows each individual to walk with Jesus according to their own conscience, as it's indwelled by the Spirit, removing the right to impose a personal conviction onto anyone else. As we noted last Sunday in way of illustration, if you have the conviction that you need to abstain from drinking alcohol, friend, you have that right, you have that freedom, 
You have that prerogative. As long as you realize you have no right to impose that conviction onto someone else because the Bible doesn't, or to separate yourself from those who do drink, that's uh, separatism, that's not right, or, and this is the kicker, to see that position as somehow making you a better Christian, because it doesn't. Nothing you do or don't do makes you a better Christian. But on the flip side, it should be reiterated that if you do enjoy responsibly the freedom to drink, you have that right, freedom and prerogative, as long as you also don't impose that conviction onto someone else, separate yourself from those who disagree, or see that position as somehow making you a better Christian. The danger of this counter-reaction to legalism is that it often takes the person who enjoys their freedom and it fosters a false sense that they're now somehow better than the person who's yet to fully experience the liberating nature of grace, period. It kind of falls into this trap of being so right, you're wrong. Heaven forbid. While the traditional legalist prides themselves on what they do and or refrain from doing for Jesus, the exact same snare can exist for those who react to legalism by taking pride in their liberty and not the liberator. Pastor Timothy Keller tweeted the following statement that really kind of stirred me with this particular thought. He said why we should resist this tendency, quote, the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. Amen. Now moving on. Remember, the core problem with all legalists, anyone who would distort the gospel message, the gospel of grace, period, more specifically, what we find Peter guilty of himself here in Galatians 2. The problem, the core problem, is not a failure to believe the gospel, but instead a failure to fully trust that the gospel works. And it's important to point out that following his public rebuke of Peter, Paul transitions this chapter into a sermon, a sermon that he gives there in Antioch after he resists Peter, after he calls him on the carpet, he gives this sermon, sermon to the church of Antioch, now a sermon to the folks in Galatia, also a sermon to us. It's what we have recorded here. And Paul will lay out where it is that the true power of the gospel lies in grace, not law. He's gonna get into a bit of theology. Verse 15 of chapter 2, the book of Galatians, Paul says, and this is a sermon, We Jews, by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul begins this sermon by pointing out that the Jews had a very clear, distinct advantage over the Gentiles. This is what he means when he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners as of the Gentiles. Paul is saying that we Jews, man, we had it all set up for us. Like we were called out of the world to be God's people, A. 
B, we were given his law to obey. C, we were given promises to hold on to. D, the law to obey. Like we had it all set up. We were his people. We were chosen. We were equipped. We were separated. We had his presence and his law. And yet, even with all of that advantage, the Jewish people had failed to find themselves, look at it, justified by the works of the law. They had all this advantage, and yet the law had failed to be a moral influencer. Paul's purpose here is to kind of knock the Jews off their high horse a little bit. Yeah, you have advantage. You have the law. You had the presence of God. You had the temple. You had all that. But to what end? You are just as sinful as the Gentiles, just as lost as the Gentiles, just as compromised as the Gentiles. All of the advantage didn't seem to really work or help out. Now, let me define a term real quick. Because as we work through this, Paul uses a bunch of what I would call Christianese. Like words that we don't often use in common vernacular that we find in the Bible, and thus immediately there's kind of a disconnect. Like if I say the word justified, immediately what should come into your mind often is a really good show that was on FX called Justified. But in regards to the biblical definition of the term, understand, justification is more than just being forgiven. If, if justification and forgiveness were the same thing, forgiveness would be a lot easier word to use. But justification isn't the same thing as forgiveness. It actually takes the concept of forgiveness another step further. It means that not only am I forgiven of my sin, but now there's no longer any record of my sin. It not just forgives me of wrongdoing, it eliminates the history, the backstory, the web history of my wrongdoing. Whereas forgiveness absolves me of the consequences of my sin, justification, it imparts on my behalf a right standing before God. Where when God sees me, he not only doesn't see my sin because it's been forgiven, he sees Jesus' righteousness imparted on my account. Meaning, I'm now justified. So when God sees me, he sees Jesus. So he sees me just as if I had never sinned. It's not just I was a rebel or I had this history of, 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 of sin and wickedness that God forgave me from. It's that that whole history is gone. It's eliminated, which makes sense with phrases and scriptures where we're told God casts our sin as far as the east is to the west, right? If it was far as the north is to the south, it explains why Santa Claus holds a lot of stuff against us because it all goes there, right? No, north, south, I can get there. East, west, I go forever. That's the whole concept of the sphere of circle. David would say, though my sins were as scarlet, You'll make them as white as snow. It's gone. Your history's gone, which then makes it really silly that you keep kicking yourself over your past when God isn't because he doesn't even remember it. When he sees you, he sees the blood of Jesus covering you. He sees you righteous. You are right. Thus, you are justified. Now, when it came to the issue of being justified before God, to be rendered righteous, or seen by God just as if I'd never sinned. 
These Jewish Christians, to which Paul is addressing, Peter, those sent from James, the church there in Antioch, they understood, they rightly understood that the works of the law had always fallen short of their aim. I mean, keep in mind, this crew had come to Jesus. They'd accepted Jesus' work on the cross. But Paul's aim now is to go a step further. He affirms, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile. Like it's to this point that both the Jews who had the law and the Gentiles who didn't shared a commonality. Like they were more similar than they wanted to admit. No one could be justified. There's nothing you could do, Jew or Gentile, to justify yourself, which then explains this commonality that the Jews and the Gentiles shared. It explains why Paul would write in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. I'll read it for you. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Everyone has all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. And then he hammers it home, reiterates it. There is none who does good, no, not one. We're all lost. None of us can justify ourselves. Now, let me explain why it is that the works of the law fail to justify a person. Why there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. Justification, which is a position, it's a state of being. It is a position one has before God. Justification can only come after a complete atonement of sin. Now, what does that mean? Let's unpack that. To atone for something means the complete satisfying of a debt. Now, you're a sinner, right? And so you owe a debt. In your rebellion, you owe a debt. Your sin has set up a negative balance. Romans 6, 23, for the wages or the debt of sin is what? Death. That's your debt. So atonement is to satisfy your sinful debt. You see, you can work, you can strive, you can as they would say in Georgia, hunker down, in the attempts of your life being right before God. But this will come to no avail as there is still nothing that you can fundamentally do to atone for sin, except for one thing, dying an eternal death. Like no act but death atones for sin. And since no work of sinful man can atone for his sinful state and thus rectify his rebellion against God, there can be no justification, which now makes the works of the law rather useless, religion rather fruitless. Isaiah 64 verses 5 and 6, the prophet said this. He said, for we, speaking of the Jews, have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need, note, the prophet recognizes it, to be saved. I can't be just, I need to be saved. And then he says this, he says, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now that is sugar-coated and sterilized. 
this phrase, our righteousness are like filthy rags. What do you say? Like the best you can do, the best you can offer, the best you can present before God, the fruit of your labor, the best it is, is like filthy rags. Now, now what is that? It's, it's literally a menstrual cloth. Like if we were to translate this into modern language, and I'm sorry, but this is the way that it is. It's a dirty, used, old, discarded tampon. Yeah, that reaction uh, is the reaction Isaiah wants you to have. And what is he equating that to? Your goodness in the eyes of God. Gross. Yes, that's the point. Understand, Paul is reminding his audience here, this group of religious Jews, that while their works of the law failed, justification before God had been made possible through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Jesus satisfied the debt for sin that you owed through a sacrificial death so that by faith in Christ, a phrase that Paul uses here and will use often, in this very work, we might be justified before God. Salvation, because of this being the mechanism, came to both the Jew and to the Gentile, not through anything we do, but everything he did. It doesn't come justification by works of the law, but rather as a gift from God. Paul substantiates this point saying, even we, Jews with a moral advantage, have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Understand, in light of this legalistic tendency to emphasize our works and the law, Paul is hammering home the reality that neither of them have ever played a role in our atonement for sin and thus our justification before God. Today, every Christian has been forgiven and declared right before God. That's justification for one reason and one reason alone. Your faith and belief and the work of Christ Jesus. Two things, friend, are essential for you to be justified before God. Two things. Paul says belief in Christ. Believe in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? This word belief, it, it means to think to be true. Something that starts in the mind. It's coming to the understanding, the acceptance that Jesus is crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross. By that work, my sin was atoned for. A price that I couldn't pay was satisfied by Jesus. I believe that in my mind. I accept that to be true, that my sin has been atoned for, satisfied, cleared. But then also, he says, belief in Christ, to know it to be true, and then faith in Christ. This word faith, it's kind of one of these, these spiritual terms that, that kind of connects what I know to be true and how I behave. It's a spiritual muscle. You might view it as like trust or confidence. 
belief in the sense that I know, but faith in the sense that now I trust it. I place my confidence in it. I'm found in it. It's this idea that I'm found righteous before God because I'm found in Jesus. That his death not only justifies me before God, not only atones for my sins so that, so that I'm right before God, but because I'm found in Jesus, I'm also given or imparted his goodness, his righteousness, his position. Let's continue verse 17. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Now this question. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we, also are, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? This is an honest, sincere question that really is designed to hit at the core fear of the legalist. This fear that grace, period, can lead to sinful behavior. That's the fear. That our freedom and Christ can be used to sin. It's as like, it's as though Paul is asking this question, aimed at addressing this natural compulsion that liberty could be a license, but by saying if someone walking in grace is found in sin, does that mean he took grace too far? That's how we would kind of modernize what Paul is asking here. But notice his response. Certainly not. In the King James Version, it's translated God forbid. But then notice something interesting. The pronoun choice that follows. Certainly not, for if I build again, I make myself a transgressor. Once again, Paul is challenging this entire notion, this entire fear, by saying, if I'm found in sin while enjoying God's grace, in a sense, if I were to reestablish those things which were rendered vain, to enter back into a lifestyle I was saved from, is it Christ's fault? Is it grace's fault? No. What Paul is saying, it's my fault. It's not grace's fault. It's not Jesus's fault. It's my fault. I've made myself a transgressor. And then flowing from this point, Paul provides another key concept to kind of substantiate the crux of his argument. He says, for I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. In context, Paul is making it clear that sinful behavior in the life of the believer should not be attributed as a failure of grace, but rather a failure to live consistently in the gospel of grace. Don't blame grace, blame yourself. Like, don't forget, the entire purpose of grace why we, why we sing amazing grace is that it accomplishes in our lives something the law could never do. The law commanded, rather, the law demanded that you live to God. That's what it did. 600 and some odd commandments commanding you to live a life pleasing to God, holy before God, right before God. It commanded it, it demanded it. But grace enables it. 
The law demands you live to God, but grace enables you to live to God. How? As a reciprocation of his grace, of his unmerited favor, of his free gift. It's why legalism is so misguided. You can never, ever take grace far enough. In actuality, the truth is that sin is an indicator you haven't taken grace far enough. While the law condemns the heart of rebellion, Jesus' love transforms the heart of the rebel. Grace enables you to live to God. How? Not by telling you things to do, but by replacing your desire to sin with a desire for godliness. It replaces the ambition to please myself with an ambition to please him. It transforms my tendency for rebellion to the heart of surrender. Understand this statement. I'm saved by grace so I can do whatever I want is an absolutely 100% true statement. It's a true statement. However, if by whatever I want, you mean anything other than pleasing Jesus, then at best you don't understand what grace is all about, or at worst, you're not actually saved because your heart hasn't changed. If you're more interested in pleasing yourself as opposed to pleasing Jesus, you don't have a grace problem. You have a heart problem, which means you have a salvation problem a regeneration problem, an indwelling spirit of God problem. Don't blame grace. Look at yourself and figure out what's wrong with that. Now you can sin, but is that your tendency? Is that your desire? Is that your longing? Or even after you sin, you're like, that's so not what I wanted to do. Where's your heart? With this in mind, this statement, through the law, I died to the law. Is Paul's way of pointing out now the silliness of using the law in place of grace to correct the ultimate problem with a believer, and that being a sin, a heart issue in regards to sin? Like, think of it. Like, how illogical is it to use the law to address sin in the life of the believer when the law not only failed to justify a believer, but has already taken a person fundamentally as far as it can. Like Paul is emphatic here in what he's saying. Through the law, I died to the law. Paul's saying the law in my life, man, it did its job. It did its job well. We've gone as far, me and the law, as we can go. Like it condemned me a sinner. Like there's no way I could say I was justified because I looked at the law and it just told me how bad I was. Like forget the 613 commandments. I take the 10. I can't get through them. Thou shalt not murder. Well, I can check that one, but Jesus says, don't be angry. Dadgummit. <laughs> don't lie. Uh, covet. Uh, uh. Like you just run down the list. So the law, it did a good job. It diagnosed you as sick, diseased, sinful. It condemned you. And it sentenced you. It said, based on your condition, you're going to hell. Death. That's it. 
It diagnosed me, it condemned me, it sentenced me. And then what did it do? The law? Look at what Paul says. Through the law, I died to the law. It condemned Paul a sinner, sentenced Paul to death. And then what did the law do? It executed him. It killed him. So like, what more can this thing do to me? I'm already dead. How can the law help me? I'm dead to it. Look at what he says next, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. How glorious. Paul is saying that Jesus was crucified for me as me. While the law sentenced me to death. Jesus, he took my place. He took my sin. He satisfied my debt so that I could be justified before God. And the Bible affirms this reality over and over and over again, that as a sinless man, Jesus willingly offered himself to be your sacrificial atoner. Remember, justification is impossible without atonement. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 we're told Jesus bore our sins and his body on that tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And note, I have been crucified with Christ. This work of Jesus, it stands accomplished. Like Paul specifically places this work in the past tense, doesn't he? I have been. It's done. What Jesus did for you, what he did for me on the cross, it was a permanent, lasting, unreversible work. Our debt, your debt, your sinful debt, it was paid. That debt was satisfied. It was atoned for. And then his righteousness was placed onto your account so that today you stand forevermore justified. No one can take it away from you for you have been crucified with Christ. But then look at what Paul says. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You can tell the person who has been crucified with Christ as the person who is no longer living, but allowing Jesus to live in them and through them. Which explains why the gospel of grace, period, if you really understand what grace is all about, it can't yield licentiousness, but only holiness. I died with Christ. I was nailed to the tree theologically. But then practically, I was also resurrected with him. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, I walked out of that tomb with him. The message of the gospel is that Jesus now today lives in me through his Holy Spirit. And he works through me through his Holy Spirit. We sing that song, the prayer of St. Francis. Make of me your hands and feet. That's theology 101. In faith, I've associated myself with his death so that now I can walk and live and move and breathe in his life. 
Notice Paul says concerning Jesus that it was he who loved me. And how did he demonstrate that love? And that he gave himself for me. Note, the gospel is not you give yourself to Jesus, but rather the fact that he gave himself for you. The gospel is not, I love Jesus, so I come to the cross. The gospel is Jesus loves me, so he went to the cross. Legalism challenges you to live, to give your life to Christ so he can live in you. And the gospel says he gave his life for you so you can live your life through him. And how does this play itself out practically? Lots of theology, but how does this play out practically? Let me begin by saying how this doesn't or shouldn't play out. Grace does not mean, the gospel does not mean that I now follow Jesus' example. It's what I would call the WWJD heresy. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? That helps me out none. It really doesn't. Like, the gospel isn't that Jesus is there as an example that now it's my job to emulate. That in all my situations and circumstances, I got to think, well, what would Jesus do? And then when I decide, I've now got to do it. Like the problem with this notion is that it in and of itself, it's, it's circular and illogical because I can't do what Jesus would do. Love my neighbor as myself? What? Like when, I, when, when, when a big group photo is taken, I don't look for my neighbor, I look for me. Why? Because I love me so much. I am mostly concerned with me and you want me to be as concerned with my neighbor? What? Love your enemy. <laughs> Are you serious? I've got to love my enemy? I can't. Jesus loved his enemy. Okay, I got that. Did you notice I don't have the Jesus name tag? Like he did it. Love my enemy. What? Died to self. I'm going to, I can't do that either. Like I am selfish, self-centered, egomaniacal. I love rebellion. Me. See, if the gospel is there's Jesus, and as Jesus goes, I follow, I'm in a heap load of trouble because I can't do it. But here's the deal. That's not the gospel. Like, that's not the gospel. That places the emphasis on you. You see, the gospel message, it, it reminds me something very important. I'm dead. The law killed me. I was crucified with Christ. I'm dead. And now it's Jesus who lives in me, and it's Jesus who works through me. This means when there's godly manifestations coming out of my life, I can't take credit. It's 100% of Jesus and none of me, no pride in my flesh. Love my enemy. I can't do it. But Jesus has done it. 
And so if I rely on Jesus, he can do it through me. I can't do it, but he can. So I'm just going to get out of the way and let him do it. If it's emulate Jesus, I'm in trouble. If it's get out of the way so Jesus can do it, I have a hope. Love my wife in a self-sacrificial way. You know, self-sacrificial way runs counterintuitive to every part of me because I'm self-centered. And yet if Jesus is the one doing it, it's possible. See, oftentimes the problem with relationships or the problem in your life isn't, isn't Jesus, it's you taking the reins when you should surrender them to Jesus. Oftentimes the problem in your marriage can't be fixed by you. It must be fixed by Jesus. Well, you don't know what that woman did to me. I don't care what that woman did to you. You need to let Jesus work through you and love her in a way you can't. And vice versa. And then when there's ungodly manifestations coming out of my life, when I say things that Jesus wouldn't say, or I think thoughts that Jesus wouldn't think, or act in ways Jesus wouldn't act, I did that once in July. I've been good since. But like when those things happen, when I'm not acting or thinking or, or reacting like Jesus would, the gospel of grace reminds me of also something important, that these things are not consistent with who I am in Jesus Christ, that that's not me. And thus I need to refocus my attention, not on me, but on walking and his spirit. And this sets a concept that Paul will write about throughout the rest of the book. You see, failures, failures remind me, not that I'm an idiot, I already know it. Not that, that, I'm a, that I have a propensity to sin, I'm aware of it. Failures remind me of something simple, the essence of the gospel, <laughs> that I just need Jesus. Like honestly, what good is the law? Think about it. And the moment of failure, what does the law do? The law emphasizes a false identity. You're such a screw up, Zach. I can't believe you would do such a thing. You're a moron. You're a failure. Thank you, law. I'm already aware. I already know that I fall so short. Thanks for hammering that home. But that's a lie, because that's not who I am. That's a false identity. When Satan beats the condemnation drub, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It ain't me, man. Jesus on the cross, the blood, I've been crucified. It's not me, it's Christ. So that stuff is an old person that's gonna die. I don't need to rehab him. I need to kill him, crucify him. Be done with him, away with him. So the law reminds me of a false identity, that I'm a sinner when that's not my identity. I'm right before God. I'm good. I'm golden. What else does the law do? It tells me that I should feel condemned that I let God down. Have you ever had those thoughts? Jesus, he came and he lived and then he died on the cross for my sins and I can't even live for him. Boom, boom, condemnation, boom. And yet, wait a second, no. I've been forgiven. 
I've been given his favor. I'm right. That's not me either. The law, what else does it do? It tells me that I need to be trying harder. But the problem is that me trying harder solves nothing. Because no one is justified by the works of the law. See, these things, the law, it distracts me from what I need most in the moment of failure. The transforming power of God's grace. Paul's solution to sin and the life of the believer is not law, but a renewed awareness of the presence of Jesus in my life brought forth through his amazing grace. And now Paul closes his sermon. Verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This word set aside in the Greek, it it literally means to frustrate, refuse, or to do away with. Like Paul was so swift in confronting Peter's legalism because the The propagating of this notion that God's favor is earned or maintained was not only untrue, but was dangerous. Why? Because legalism limits the effective work of grace in our lives by emphasizing my problem and not the solution. Paul's like, I do not set aside the grace of God. I resist legalism because I am not frustrating what my solution is. And that's God's favor given, not his favor earned. The transforming of my heart, I do not set it aside. I do not do away with it. Keep in mind, the law has no place in the life of the believer because it fosters fundamentally a distance between you and God, doesn't it? Like the law reminds you of God's holiness and it illustrates the depths of your fallenness, separates you. And yet, what we need most in the moment of our failure is not distance from God, but a great reconciler who steps in the gap and reminds us that in spite of ourselves, He still loves us and is still proud of us. It still has a plan for us and a future for us. Romans 2 verse 4 says this, that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Paul wraps up his sermon with what can only be described as kind of a drop the mic, walk off stage right moment. I mean, he says, for if righteousness, my right standing before God, comes to the law, what I do, then Christ died in vain. I mean, if what we do or what we don't do, the law, played a role in our justification or our perfection, Jesus died for nothing. That's what Paul's saying. His point is that we either need all of Christ or no Christ at all. I want to point out one more important concept that kind of weaves its way through Paul's sermon. Did you notice from our text how personally Paul took these concepts? I mean, sure. He's communicating some rather intense theology. I mean, this is substantive doctrine. And yet Paul's presentation emphasizes 
how significant the doctrine of grace and grace alone was to himself, like his own life. Did you notice it? 19 times and just seven verses, Paul uses the personal pronouns we, me, myself, and I. And this is not an accident. I hope you understand. The exchanged life. What does that mean? Jesus' death and his life. I identify with his death so I can identify in his life. He takes my sin. He gives me his righteousness. It's a great exchange. But this idea presented by Paul is not just a concept for you to understand, but it's a concept for you to personally experience. I have been crucified. It is no longer I who live. But can you, can you take the things that Paul wrote here and internalize them? Can you personify them? Can you say them as they're written? It is no longer I. It's Christ who lives in me. Can you say that this morning? I hope you understand that you must know these things by experiencing these things. If these things are to have any real meaning in your life.